really appreciate all the people that participate in the music ministry here at Foothill. I was here yesterday morning and Ron had him, he was like an air traffic controller, having them scheduled uh, instrumentalists and then the choir and you know, just one right after another, putting in extra practices, getting ready for the Christmas season and all that extra special music that they'll bring to us at that time. So we appreciate all the sacrifices that they make to uh, minister to us. The problem of uh, evil is one of the greatest theological dilemmas of all time. By simple observation, anyone can see that there is much evil in the world. Whether it be a uh, 18-year-old murdering the parents of his 14-year-old girlfriend or apparently some sort of argument about curfews or something, or whether it be a, a government in Sudan systematically exterminating its own citizens in order to be able to get to the oil that lie, the oil reserves that lie below their land. There's evil in the world. You don't have to be very old to understand that. But vile as those actions of that 18-year-old or that government might be, they pale, really, in comparison to the manifest evil that was demonstrated a long time ago when they executed the Son of God on a cross. Yet, in the Christian faith, we refer to the day of His death not as Evil Friday, do we? But we call it, what? Good Friday. Good Friday. Why is that? Why can we refer to the greatest evil in all of the universe and call it Good Friday? I think the answer has to be that our sovereign God used the execution of Jesus Christ, that which was simultaneously evil, and transformed it into that which became the greatest good for mankind. Our God is so big, so powerful, so intimately involved in the affairs of His creation, that He could take the execution of His own Son. In fact, plan the execution of His own Son in order to bring about the greatest good imaginable. The Bible clearly says that it is the linchpin of His whole great eternal plan, the execution of Jesus Christ. In Revelation chapter 13, verse 6, it says that Jesus was the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. This was not an afterthought on God's part. This was not just that God saw a terrible tragedy and decided that He would work to make it into something good. The Bible is very clear that the execution of Christ in the mind of God was before even the foundation of the earth. It's that much, that integral a part of 
his plan. The prophet Isaiah in chapter 53, he says that the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. The Lord was pleased to do so, it says. It says the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. That's why God was pleased to crush him. It says over in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 and following, in the sermon at Pentecost, according to the Apostle Peter, speaking to Israel, he says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Part of the predetermined plan of God before the foundation of the earth and the mind of God, his son was slain. God was well pleased to put him to death. Tragic, tragic event. Crucifixion. Christ. Yet, God brings from this incredible tragedy the greatest good imaginable, the redemption of His people. Beloved, if God can transform and indeed plan the greatest evil to bring about the greatest good, don't you think He can work in our lives? Don't you think He can use the events of our lives Indeed, let me say, don't you think he has planned the events of our lives? Evil events, even, to bring about good in us. Way back in Genesis, the angel was talking to Abraham and promising him a son. And it seemed impossible because of his age and the age of his wife. And the angel said, is anything too Difficult for the Lord. Is anything too difficult? Open your Bibles to John chapter 19. In John's gospel narrative, we now move from the trial into the execution of Jesus Christ. And in the process of moving into that, and working through it, there are three, at least three, examples of God's sovereignty that I want to point out to you. We won't get to them all this morning, but we will at least get started. Three examples of God's sovereignty here in the execution of Jesus Christ. And I want you to see these examples, not so that we would just be emotionally moved in the execution of Christ, emotionally moving as that event is. But what I want you to see is God's sovereign hand in, through, and behind it all. I want you to understand that when the Son of God hung on a Roman cross, 
This is not plan B. This was the plan, the linchpin of the eternal plan. And so as we look at this together and see God's sovereign hand in it, what we can draw from this is comfort and security in our own lives. Because there are all kinds of events going on in our lives that are difficult, that are, that are evil. There's wickedness that impacts us. And John tells the story here in such a way that you can't mistake the Father's sovereign hand through it all. And so as we go through it and see His sovereign hand in it, I want you to, I want you to take comfort in the totality of the control of our God. Verse 17. They took Jesus, therefore, and He went out. And bearing His own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two other men, one on either side and Jesus in between. And Pilate wrote an inscription also and put it on the cross, and it was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Therefore, this inscription many of the Jews read, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. And so the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Like all the gospel writers, John's narrative of the actual crucifixion is very abbreviated. He just says, look again, verse 18, they they took him out and they crucified him. That's all he says. And like the other gospel writers, the reason that he has such a a narrow description of crucifixion is because the, the actual gory details of the event of crucifixion are really not the main point. They took him out and they crucified him. That's the point. And beyond that, it's the meaning of the crucifixion. That's what the writers are interested in communicating. And so John gives us here just a little bit different view than the other writers. And so I want to look and stay within the Gospel of John this morning and, and just draw from it what is it that he's trying to communicate. Now, a little background would be helpful. Verse 17, it says they, uh, he went out, right? They, they took Jesus, therefore, and he went out bearing his own cross. The procedure was common. The condemned man would be forced to march or, or, or walk through the city by one of the, you know, the longest route they could practically find. So they wouldn't take him in the shortest route to his execution. They'd take him in one of the longest routes. He'd be accompanied by a centurion and a squad of four soldiers. And they would parade him through this rather lengthy route through the city. And they would do it in order to humiliate the victim. They would do it in order to provide a gruesome level of entertainment for the crowds. And they would do it, probably most importantly, to attract attention to what's happening. Again, these are the days before media, right? 
No CNN cameras telecasting the event. And so they want the crowd to be there. They don't want the execution to be private, to be quiet, to they want it to be public and they want it to be well attended. And so they would normally take the victim through this kind of a circuitous route. And that's what it says here. He went out. They would also have the, Christ, the, uh, the, the uh, victim bear their own cross, it says again, verse 17. So bearing his own cross was very common. It's not something that Jesus had to do different than anybody else who was being crucified. All part of the humiliation process. Maybe only the crossbar, maybe the whole cross itself, we're not exactly sure. But he would go out and he would bear that cross along the way, just like everybody else. Now, the other, uh, the other gospel writers do mention that when he, would, when he exited the city gates, he was so exhausted from fatigue and the abuse and probably loss of blood that they actually impressed a person coming in from the countryside, Simon of Cyrene, right, to carry his cross for him, just demonstrating the level of, of fatigue and that Jesus had experienced at that point. But they take him to this place, again, look at verse 17, to a place called the place of the skull, called in Hebrew Golgotha, the place of the skull. It's interesting, um, Golgotha is a transliteration of a Greek word, which is a transliteration of a Hebrew word. Okay, so we're several languages removed, but essentially what it means is skull or cranium. So they took him to a place called the skull or the cranium. And in fact, just as a footnote for you, Calvary, which many of us, right, they crucified him on Calvary. Calvary is Latin. Comes from Jerome's Latin Vulgate in the fourth century, and it means skull or cranium. Okay, so they took him to the skull. We don't exactly know what that is. Perhaps a hillside that, if you look at it at a certain angle, maybe resembled a human skull. We don't really know. But anyway, they took him to this place. We do know there was close to the city gates. Hebrews chapter thirteen tells us that thirteen twelve that it was just outside the city gates. And as we read further in the narrative here, we'll know that it was near major intersection. So the idea was to take him to a place where he could be publicly displayed and many, many, many people would see the crucifixion. Now, we're not exactly sure where that place is. There is some dispute. You go to the Holy Land, they'll take you to a couple different places and tell you this is where it was. We don't exactly know where it was. It was someplace outside the city gates place of the skull and there verse 18 they crucified him there they crucified him there they subjected him to the most slow the most agonizing the most debasing the most humiliating the most painful means of execution perhaps ever devised they crucified him death of crucifixion was death from asphyxiation. There they crucified him, it says. They laid him on the ground, they stretched his arms on the crossbar, and they secured him with nails through his wrists and probably through his heels. And they hoisted him up for crucifixion. Crucifixion was considered so brutal a means of execution, it was prohibited to be used on any but slaves or insurrectionists, 
A Roman citizen could not be crucified unless the emperor himself personally sanctioned the crucifixion. It was a brutal means to die. There they crucified him. But there's, no, there's not the heavy focus there. The focus moves on here in the narrative. And notice verse 19. The focus moves to the inscription. That's the event that John really, interestingly, wants to draw out here. It says, Pilate wrote an inscription, also verse 19, and put it on the cross. A placard. Again, very common. Nothing unique to Jesus. As part of the parading through the city, there would be a, a placard normally hung around the neck of the condemned person, and, the, and it would state their crime. And so as they paraded him through the city, there would be his crime sort of dangling around his neck. There were two reasons they did that. One was, in case there were any defense witnesses that might come forward at the last moment and bring evidence that would free the victim. Rome was always concerned about the legalities. But that's probably secondary to the real reason they hung a placard around the neck of the condemned man, and that was it was good advertising. It was good advertising. It was good public policy. Because what it communicated to the throngs who came out to view the crucifixion was this is what happens to people who, who commit this kind of crime, Right? There's the placard, there's the charge, there's the crime hanging around his neck. Crime doesn't pay would be the, the shorthand way of writing out the placard. But notice the placard, verse 19, that Pilate wrote. He had it nailed, by the way, again, very commonly after they got there and crucified him, they'd nail it above him on the cross because a victim could stay on the cross for several days. And so the people coming in and out of the city would see the cross, they would see the person dying, they would see the charge against him, and they would know crime does not pay. And so he puts this placard on the cross, and it's written, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. That's his charge. That's the reason for his crucifixion. Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. Now you remember from the last couple of weeks how we pointed out to you repetitively how Pilate had been manipulated by the Jewish Sanhedrin. How Pilate was absolutely convinced of the innocence of Jesus Christ and, and attempted six different times to, to set him free, but always got boxed in by the authorities. Every direction he turned, they would cut him off and they would continue to drive him towards that thing which he did not want to do, which was crucify this clearly innocent man. And so Pilate now, I think, is having his sweet revenge. Now is his opportunity to strike back. Now is his opportunity to insult and to humiliate those who have insulted and humiliated him. It's his chance to push back. And he does it in this placard by writing out Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. This is why I think that. Notice back in verse 15... When he has Jesus standing there and there's, he's just really a wreck of a man, there's not a lot left of him. He's been beaten to a pulp already. And he says, shall I crucify your king? And, and we pointed out last time, he's, he's saying, look at this pathetic creature. This is your king. Is this who you really want me to crucify? 
And they respond, verse 15, right? We have no king but Caesar. Now, he knows they're hypocrites. He knows they can't stand Caesar. They hate Rome. That it was absolutely a a, a hypocritical thing for them to say, motivated out of their bloodlust and their hatred for Christ and their desire to have him crucified. And so now he turns it back on them and he puts over the head of Jesus Christ the sign that says he's the king. And basically what he's communicating is this pathetic victim is the king of the Jews, the only king they'll ever have. The only king they'll ever have. Also, by the way, just as an additional point of humiliation, notice where the, he elects to have Christ crucified. They put him between two thieves. Between two Robbers between two people clearly deserving crucifixion. They don't put them on the end. They put them right between them. Again, sort of communicating that this is your king. Just a common thief, robber. Now, there is, as you move through the gospel accounts, there is a a variation in wording between the four gospel records when you put them all together. I think the reason for that is, as in verse 20 reveals, that this thing is written in three different languages. And so there are nuances of translation. We see when you put it all together, it probably said something like, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. That's probably exactly what the full placard said. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. This is your king, Israel. Now, we further know that he was mocking them. When we see the response down in verse 21. But before we get there, notice verse 20, it says that this description many of the Jews read for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. It was written in Hebrew, Latin and Greek. The three major languages of that part of the world, Latin would have been the imperial military language, the official language of government. Hebrew was the, the local tongue, and Greek was the international trade language. And so anyone coming in and out of the capital city of Jerusalem would, would be familiar with at least one of those languages. And so he displays it in full view of all coming in and out of the city. He uses a, a three different languages to make sure that you can understand what the placard says. And he clearly states on the placard, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. His disdain for the nation of Israel could not be more manifest. He hates them. And this is his sweet revenge. As I said, we know it works when we look at verse 21. And we see how they responded. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. They want him crucified for an allegation of being king, right? That was their charge that he makes himself out to be king, a charge of insurrection. So they are they are not pleased at all with the way that Pilate has crafted the placard. They understand what Pilate's doing and they want him to change it. Pilate, don't kill him and say that he is the king of the Jews. Say that that's what he said he was. 
and therefore you killed him. But Pilate has been badgered enough. Hmm? They have pushed his buttons long enough. Revenge is sweet for him. And so, notice how he responds to them. Verse 22. What I have written, I have written. I will not change it. It will not change. It communicates exactly what I want to say. I want to stick it right in your face. Be a colloquial translation of what Pilate said. I know that it bothers you. That's why I wrote it. That's why I wrote it. It was written out of malice. It was written out of revenge. It was written out of the pain of humiliation. All the ungodly motives that you could possibly think of are what are behind what Pilate has written. And see, that's the beauty of it. That's why John includes this for us. The point of it is, is that even the malice of Pilate, a pagan Roman governor, serves the purpose of God Almighty. The Lord Jesus Christ is the King of the Jews. Amen? That placard is correct. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. That's a true statement. And it's amazing that Pilate has it written in three different languages so that the truth of that statement, that this is the Messiah King, the Davidic King, the one to come, can be clearly seen by all the people of all the world who are flowing into the city of Jerusalem. There is not a Jew anywhere in the world who could not read either Latin, Hebrew, or Greek. And so all would know. And beyond that, it is the cross that is the means of the glorification and exaltation of the king. The way to the throne is via the cross. Hebrews chapter 1 says that when he had finished, he, he ascended and sat at the right hand of the Father. And so very much, Pilate means it for evil. He's, he's, he's trying to humiliate his subjects, and yet God in his sovereignty overrules the whole situation, and he proclaims to all the world and those who have eyes to see that this is indeed the Messiah of the Jews who via his cross ascend to the throne. It's amazing. It's amazing. This is probably about as close, by the way, as you'll get to the gospel written in the clouds, right? People say, well, why didn't just God write the gospel right across the heavens so everybody can see? Well, I don't know. He chose you and I to be the means by which he would proclaim the gospel to all the earth, right? Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But this is a pretty good um, substitute on a sign written in three languages placed at the most strategic point possible of the capital city of the nation. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. 
This is God's commentary on what's going on. The nation has rejected him. Right? The people said we, or the, the, the leaders rather, said we have no king but Caesar. The people said his blood be on us and on our children. So they have totally and fully rejected him and they have cut themselves off from the glorious promise of the blessing of the Messiah. A condition, by the way, that persists even to this day. The nation as a whole remains cut off. The nation as a whole continues to reject the one whom God publicly displayed as their king. This was uh, all part of the plan of God as well. We don't understand how this all fits together, but let me take you to a few passages. When, maybe starting with a question, is when will this matter change? Go over to uh, Matthew 23. See, it's, it's written for the nation, but they can't see it. They read the words, but it remains obscure to them as to what they mean. The end of Matthew 23. The answer is that the nation remains in this state of persistent unbelief and cut off from their God until the horrors of the great tribulation bring them to their knees and finally break their rebellion. But notice here in uh, just the end of Matthew 23, this I believe was spoken here on Tuesday afternoon of the Passion Week. Verse 37, Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you from now on, you shall not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus went out of the temple. The fulfillment of that statement, that is, your house is being left to you desolate, and that you will not see me again until you are ready to say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, is fulfilled right in verse 1 of chapter 24. When he walks out of the temple, he walks out of the, na- the life of the nation at that point. And so from that time on, of course, we know that it moves rapidly to his crucifixion where John is giving us the narrative now. So the nation remains in a state of persistent unbelief and will do so, Jesus says, until they're willing to say this, verse 39, that is citing Psalm 118, a messianic psalm of the enthronement of the king. When will that occur? Well, go over to Zechariah chapter 12. I'm just, we want to tie a few of these threads together for you. Zechariah 12, that's right near the end of the Old Testament where the pages are all stuck together. Unless you've read through the Bible in a year with us, and then you've, you've broken the log jam, right? Zechariah 12. Verse 10. 
He says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. There will be a day, the prophet says, when they will finally look on him whom they have pierced. Now they pierced him right in the crucifixion. And as John will go on to say, the Roman spear in his side creates him as the pierced one. But they will look on him someday and they will recognize. And what is it they will recognize that will bring about this mourning, this bitter weeping that he prophesies here? Well, for that, you have to go back to Isaiah 53. So go ahead and do that. The prophet is writing here from the point of view of the, of the remnant of Israel speaking in light of what's already been recognized there in Zechariah 12.10. So he writes, Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For we grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, And like one from whom men hide their face and he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray, but each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7, calls the great tribulation the time of Jacob's trouble. In the intense persecution that will come upon the Jewish nation in the final three and a half years of the tribulation, it will bring such intensity upon them that it will break the nation. And they will finally look and call out to the one whom they've crucified. And they will recognize that he is, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Come, Lord Jesus. And they will call out to him and he will come. And when he comes, they will recognize the truth of the prophet Isaiah looking at him. And they will say, we thought he was crucified for his own sin. We thought God had broken him because he was a sinner. We have come to realize that God broke him for us. And when that truth dawns on them, then they will weep with bitter weeping as one weeps over the loss of an only son. Back to John 19. The nation remains to this day in the state of the authorities of that day. Don't write that he is the king of the Jews, but that he said he was. That he was crucified legitimately. And that's the way the nation sits to this day. 
and will until they are ready to say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. John paints a scene for us here of great hope. Great hope. The nation has despised (coughs) the Messiah. They have sent him off to crucifixion. In the malice of Pilate, there has been an inscription put over his head that only under the sovereignty of God (coughs) actually reveals the glorious truth of who Christ is. A long, long time ago, a young man named Joseph was taken by his brothers who hated him and wanted to kill him. But in a weakness of compassion, decided instead to sell him to some slave traders. And so they sold their own flesh and blood into slavery. And in the providence of God, that young slave rose to be number two in the empire of Egypt. And when later in time, when those same brothers went down into Egypt to escape the famine that was going to consume their little tribal band, they encountered their brother. And when dad died, they were concerned that brother would take advantage now of the situation that dad was out of the picture and he would seek the revenge upon them that they deserved. And the little brother who had risen to such a level of authority spoke to them and said, don't worry, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. In order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. His brothers had meant evil. Joseph knew God had meant good. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ was meant for evil. God meant it for good. The placard of Pilate above his head was meant for evil. God meant it for good. There are some of you amongst us who have recently suffered the loss of a loved one. Others of you are battling severe and even debilitating or perhaps even life-threatening disease. Still others of you have family problems or issues at work. Someone has treated you badly. Someone has legitimately done evil against you. They meant it for evil. Beloved, God means it for good. If God can take the crucifixion of His own Son and turn it into the redemption of mankind, can He not take the difficulties of our life, even the most serious and painful of events and bring good from them. Amen? We need to have the kind of perspective that the Apostle John had when he recorded these events. Now let me speak to a 
few others of you here this morning. The nation of Israel, as we pointed out, rejected the Messiah. Given the opportunity to bend the knee before their king, they refused. So they took him off for execution. They knew what they were doing. They were unwilling to come to terms with his requirements. They thought it was easier to get rid of him than it was to deal with him, but you can't get rid of God that easy. You can't ignore him. Try as you may, you can't kill him. For he is the king. It was clearly displayed on the placard. He is the king. And there are a number of you among us. Some of you come week after week. Others of you perhaps occasionally. Some maybe it's your first time today. My question for you is, is what are you going to do about Jesus Christ? The one who was crucified and, as the Bible so clearly says, rose again. The one who, for the love of mankind, went to that cross, carrying with him the guilt for your sin, the punishment for your iniquity. The Bible clearly says that God laid upon him our iniquity. That he became our sacrifice. That is, those who by faith receive it. What will you do with your knowledge of Jesus Christ? Will you, like the Roman or the Jewish leaders, say, We have no king but Caesar? Will it take God to bring upon you an intensity of tribulation personally to break you? Is that what you're waiting for? Or will you humble yourself in his presence, bend your knee, call out to him? And say, be merciful to me, the sinner. Jesus is the king. There's no getting around that. Philippians tells us that someday all will bow their knee before him. The difference between those who are Christians and those who are not is that by faith, Christians bend the knee now in this life. Those who refuse it still bend the knee. But they do it the next as they're on their way to hell. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ was the greatest evil imaginable. And at the same time, brings about the greatest good. What will you do with Jesus Christ? As we close our service this morning, after the final song, there will be some folks available to talk with you if you would like to speak more.
about these things. They'll be waiting for you over here by this lighted cross. And they would love to dialogue further. Let's pray. Our Father God, as we contemplate the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, that infinite one who willingly gave his life for us, we cannot help but be reminded of the depth of our sin that would necessitate such a sacrifice. Lord God, we realize that if eternal matters were truly settled on a great cosmic scale of our good efforts and our bad weighed out one against another, then there would be, it would be a mockery for your son to die. It would be blasphemous. It could not be considered good in any way only evil. But the fact that he did die and the fact that he had to die and the fact that it was from your predetermined plan, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, we know, Father, that it cannot possibly be a cosmic scale. That our iniquity is so heavy that there is only one who could be placed on it to outweigh us outweigh the depth of our guilt, and that would be the very Son Himself. And so, Lord God, You sent Your Son to bear our sin. Thank You for such a gift. Thank You for loving us so much that You would pour out Your own blood on our behalf. We thank You in Christ's name. Amen.